Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 tonight and uh, drilling down a bit more into the conversion of the Thessalonian believers. And uh, so as we look at this together tonight, I pray that uh, God would give us a full understanding, appreciation of what true conversion looks like. Uh, might we rejoice in this uh, together as we come uh, to his word. As we come to 1 Thessalonians 1, we look at Paul's description of the beginning of the Thessalonians' story in the gospel. Although Paul and Silas had only preached there three weeks, they had much to thank God about and what he had done. It starts, and they'll reflect upon in, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, the conversion of the Thessalonian believers. It leads to, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the early discipleship of those same believers, and then for the final part of chapter 2 and through chapter 3, the continued faithfulness that these believers were demonstrating in Christ. So we look at the conversion of the Thessalonians and the fruit of that conversion. I want to start our reading in verse 5. So we're, I'm going to read verses 5 through 10. We're going to look at verses 5 through 7 tonight. So let's look at verse 5. Paul says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you this evening, we consider this text. We just pray that you would be with us. I pray that you would help us to understand these words, help us to believe them, help us to apply them to our own lives and our own experience. Or for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here tonight, I pray that they would be encouraged by the true marks of conversion they see in this text as they see those in their own lives or the lives of those that they have come to love and appreciate, I pray that you would help them to be thankful as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as we come to verses 5 through 10, Paul is specifically going to recall the conversion experience of the Thessalonian believers. And he's going to draw our attention to two things from my perspective. First, he's going to describe how the gospel came powerfully to them when he preached it, uh, verses 5 through 7. Then he transitions to the amazing effects that that gospel had and the conversion of the Thessalonians had in their area. And so tonight we're just going to see how the gospel came powerfully in Thessalonica. So we'll start in verse 5. Look with me at verse 5 to see how he describes the nature of Paul's preaching. 
says, uh, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and, the, and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, for you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In every city that Paul went to, I think he started the same way, and, uh, or he included the same things. His mission in every city always involved proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because it was the only thing that could bring, the only message that could bring conversion. So whether he was in Ephesus or Corinth or Berea or Thessalonica like here, he communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. And that is a mark that we would do well to follow, right? It'd be good for any one of us to have the same mark of proclaimers of the gospel. We recognize that preachers are, they, they preach the gospel. Do you know what? Believers should as well, right? As preachers preach it, believers should, all believers, not the preachers aren't believers. It didn't come out exactly right. Okay. We all must be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as Paul reflects upon this, he describes his proclamation gospel in four ways. First, he says, our gospel came to you with words. Okay, and you might say it's just a simple fact. We can kind of see this one and move along, but I, I want to make a point out of it. Paul shows us here that words do matter. Paul's methods in Thessalonica included verbal spoken confession. In other words, he opened his mouth and he told people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's simple. Our gospel came to you not only with words. It uh, means he at least included words. So Paul's normal practice as a follower of Christ was to open his mouth and tell others about the gospel. Um, just for a second, I want you to turn over to one of my favorite verses about evangelism in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 4.13. It's so enabling to me as a, as a follower of Christ. 2 Corinthians, keep your finger here. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 13. I love this passage. You ever feel weak and powerless to open your mouth? I mean, that's what the Lord wants us to do. Open your mouth and say the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 13, you get there, Paul says, uh, but having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, and then there's a quote. It's from Psalm 116 verse 10. Paul says, uh, it's a short quote, I believed Therefore, I spoke, end quote. Then Paul's comment. We also believe, therefore, we also speak. One of the things you need to know about 2 Corinthians is in chapter 1, Paul tells us that he had just endured a near-death experience. He almost died in ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps someone would ask him, Paul, why do you keep going? Or, or how do you do this? How do you keep going? And so that's what chapter 4 is primarily about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, therefore, we did not lose heart. Therefore, we did not lose heart. As we come to this verse that we just read here, uh, verse 13, and its quotation of, from the Psalms, I think Paul's answering the question, why he keeps going or why he keeps suffering. Okay? And his answer is, if you press Paul, why do you keep getting in trouble? Why do you keep suffering? And, and why do you keep going? His answer is, God has given me faith. So, guess what I do? I open my mouth and speak. Now, for Paul, what that normally meant is he would be, get in trouble. 
Okay, stoning, whatever. Paul says, great. And so Paul's trying to explain, why do you keep getting beat up? Why do you keep suffering? Why do you keep going through all this stuff? And for him, he just thinks of a psalm. You know, imagine Paul taking, how can I explain this to people? Let's see, let me, let me get a psalm scripture. So he's going through his psalms, he's looking for the verse, and he gets to you know, somewhere in the center of the scroll, and he goes, that's it. That's the reason, right here. Puts his finger by his verse. I believe, so the psalmist said, I believe, so I speak. Sometimes I think we make evangelism far too hard. Okay, when I have a problem sharing the gospel with Jesus Christ, I pray that God would give me greater faith. Give me faith to believe this message and to believe what the scripture says about the glory of God and the fate of lost people outside of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I believe, therefore I spoke. So go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 5, for the gospel, our gospel, did not come to you in word only. Paul did use words. He couldn't squelch his witness because he had a hearty faith. Paul understands that the salvation of others, whether in our neighborhood or the nations, required the believer's, believer's willingness to use words. But uh, then... Uh, he goes on to the next point, and I think he describes something that may be a little bit unique, especially to Paul's Thessalonian experience. He says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. If Paul wanted to recall a time when uh, the gospel came only in words or primarily in words, you might think of Athens, although there were people converted in Athens. But when he thinks of power accompanying the words, Thess Thessalonica is different. So Paul goes on to say in verse 5, not only did it come with words, but also with other things. And he stresses here power. And I think that structure, not only but also, stresses not the human agency, not the mouth, not the words, but it stresses divine power. Okay, so the emphasis is not put on the words, although he did use them. It's put on the power and the way this is arranged. By themselves, words are ineffective, but words accompanied by the power of the gospel will change lives. And that leads us to the third element of Paul's gospel proclamation. Keep, For our gospel came unto you not only in words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And that's where I think we get, begin to understand what he means by power. The third essential element of his effective gospel presentation these three weeks in Thessalonica was that the gospel came with the Holy Spirit. And I call the Holy Spirit here the great cause of everything in the Thessalonian story. The great cause of everything in their conversion was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is important in evangelism and in the salvation of a soul because it is only through his power that the word can penetrate down into the mind, heart, and will of an unbeliever. So men and women, I know it's a short verse, but this phrase is very important as we consider this. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no spiritual response. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no understanding. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. But then he keeps going. Element number four. Uh, our gospel came unto you not only in words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in what? Much assurance or full conviction. 
When we get to this place in the passage, you come to a bit of a conundrum in what does this mean? Much assurance, or better yet, who is he talking about? And there's a great difference of opinion here. He might be describing the full confidence, or I'm sorry, the, the conviction that God worked in the heart of the hearers. So remember Paul, he's writing a letter within a year. He's looking back on the Thessalonian experience and their conversion. He says, I can also say this, that it came with full conviction in the hearers. Okay, so it could be much conviction, you could translate it. Um, or the other way of taking it is the way the ESV does and the way I would prefer, and that is much assurance or confidence from or in the preachers, those who proclaimed its message. So though sometimes this is translated much conviction about how the Thessalonians responded, I think it's better to see this as the deep or full conviction that describes Paul's robust belief that God was going to use the gospel. We looked at this for some time. I think this is the best way to take it. This is not the conviction that hears is the confidence of the preacher. So Victor Furnish says it this way. He said, Paul had a great, full, had a great fullness of divine working. Another man said he was aglow with passion. D. Edmund Hebert, the old commentator, said Paul had ample assurance of success in Thessalonica. And so this description, I think, speaks of Paul's personal confidence in the gospel. He believed that the gospel would work there. Yet his full confidence, I think, is often what many modern Christians seem to lack. So let me ask you, has the Spirit given you Great, a great conviction of faith in your heart to believe that the gospel can work in the life of your unsaved neighbor. I mean, do you really believe the gospel can save your child? Even your grown child who's rejected Jesus Christ. Do you have much full, full conviction to believe it? Do your witnessing efforts demonstrate the power and work of the Spirit and your belief that he will use the gospel in the lives of the people that you're reaching. So as I'm looking at verses 5 through 7, I see the nature of Paul's preaching. His gospel came in, not only with words, but in, uh, with power and the Holy Spirit and in deep conviction. Uh, that leads us to verses 6 and 7, and this is just what I call the fruit of Paul's preaching. So you had the nature of Paul's preaching, the fruit of his preaching. Well, what came as a result of this full confidence and this message and this power of the Holy Spirit? Look at verse 6. It says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Here's evidence of the genuine faith and salvation of the Thessalonians, Paul rejoices in the fruit that God produced through their conversion. Verses six and seven here, I think he, he describes three evidences of how God mightily worked in the Thessalonians when they were saved. First, they became followers of Christ in the midst of much persecution. Okay, it says uh, they're, they're imitators and uh, imitating him and the Lord. Uh, this word imitators is, is used all throughout the New Testament. Paul uses it, I think, four times, as I was able to find uh, in the last 
a few weeks here. And, and to the modern reader, I think we, heard the, we hear the word imitator or mimic, as it's some, sometimes described. And we think of it as, uh, you know, one who is lacking creativity, just kind of following a mold. Im- imitation sounds like something that's not g- a genuine article or therefore inferior, but that's not what this Greek term means. This is actually something quite positive. Specifically here, the Thessalonians followed Christ and Paul in that they, when they came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, uh, they were willing to do so uh, with joy despite or in the midst of suffering. And so from the very beginning of their experience, the Thessalonian believers experienced suffering and in this way imitated Paul and Christ. Leon Morris uh, describes the word suffering well. He said, uh, this word can denote literal pressure and that of the severest kind. And so as Paul's reflecting back upon the conversion of Thessalonians, he just marvels in what God did. Because remember, he was there only, for only three weeks and uh, the Jews had a problem with him. And so they stir up some people, some men of the rabble to, to run him out. Great problem. And so uh, Acts 17 shows that this affliction came from the rabble and those who were loyal to Rome, perhaps even some of the Jews. And these Jews were so zealous, remember, when, when Paul's in Thessalonica, they chase him to the next city, several miles away in Berea. And I just imagine that eventually those Jews came back to Thessalonica and they made life difficult on these early Christians. And so Paul's reflecting on the nature of their conversion. He says uh, it's, it's a marvel to him. It's evidence of God's work. They became followers of Christ, although they were opposed by the world. The second mark here, evidence of how the gospel worked in their life, is they were given joy by the Holy Spirit. End of verse 6. With joy by the Holy Spirit. This is a second reference to the work of the Spirit of God in the early conversion, early life of the Thessalonians. Here, the Spirit not only gives assurance to the preachers, he gives joy to the hearers. Men and women, joy is a divine attribute. It comes from God, and this quality or this attribute is not interrupted when undesirable life circumstances intrude but actually becomes more obvious when times are difficult for followers of Jesus Christ. Ever seen someone go through a great trial of affliction and yet somehow they have supernatural joy? It shines forth, right? There's no reason it should be that way. No reason. But they have joy from the Spirit of God It's my prayer that God would allow us in the midst of affliction. I know some of us are in affliction. You're in affliction in the midst of trial that the Holy Spirit would give you an unexplainable joy that is a powerful testimony of real, genuine conversion. So look at this. Paul's saying there are these marks or evidences of what God has done in the gospel and how he's changed you, and he gives us, you have joy. Came imitators of us and missed so much affliction, and the Holy Spirit give you joy. And then finally, third, 
They were converted, and verse 7 says that they became models for other believers. You had this joy in the midst of affliction, and uh, so that, verse 7, you might become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And we're going to see just after that, that this purpose is fulfilled in them. Okay, so verses 8 through 10, which we'll look at next week, we can see that legitimately their testimony trumpeted out to the area around them. But here, just like in verse 7, <clears throat> the word example is a word that means a pattern or a mold, an imprint or mark left as a pattern, like the mark a stamp uh, or a ring would make. So the Thessalonians were models to believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And you know where those provinces are, hopefully. Macedonia is the province, the greater area that had Thessalonica as its capital. Achaia is south of it. Its capital is Corinth, where Paul is. And so as Paul sits there and he writes this letter, he said the great effect of what the Holy Spirit has done in your life in bringing you to the faith, the great effect of God choosing you, verse 4, is that you became, you became models to believers in Macedonia and Achaia all throughout these provinces. So when the Thessalonian believers got saved, they really got saved. The fruit of their conversion had a profound effect, it was profoundly evident, so that believers throughout the whole surrounding regions were impacted. No wonder Paul had good memories of the Thessalonians. And uh, these three weeks with them. You know, as I was thinking about these new converts and the effect that they had all throughout Macedonia and Achaia to the believers around them, I was just reflecting upon an uh, example of uh, someone I knew once who was a new believer. Ever met a new believer who was zealous for the gospel of Jesus Christ? His life was dramatically changed and He loved to share the gospel, and he was greatly effective in sharing the gospel. God used him, okay? You ever wonder why sometimes our new converts to the gospel so effective in sharing their faith and proclaiming the gospel? One is they have many converts or many contacts, right? Often, many contacts. The people they know are unbelievers, But then also, they know the gospel's power to change lives. How do they know? God just did it for them. And so men and women, I close this way, I say this. Don't lose confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This 2,000-year-old story about the Son of God who came down and lived a perfect life died on a cross and rose again so that people might be delivered from sin and hell, that message is not broken. It still works. It can save your neighbor. It can save your friend. It is God's power to save any person who believes, and it will not only save them, it will change their life. 
And so as we think of the Apostle Paul and I think of these verses and he's reflecting on the Thessalonian experience and my heart just kind of stirs within me, I want to have the same sort of confidence, full assurance that the gospel will get it done. Jesus did and it can work. May we have that confidence as well. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to work through this passage. Thank you for what we see in this text. Just a brief reflection this evening, I know, on the confidence of Paul, his great confidence to believe, his his willingness to open his mouth. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be willing to open our mouths. And then I pray that you, in your spirit, would work in a powerful way. You would give much assurance or confidence to us and that you would convert our neighbor. Fathers, as was talking with my even I was talking with my neighbor today, does not know Christ. I thank you, Lord, for how you use this text in my heart to remind me, to convince me, you can do this in his life. Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, we would not be discouraged. I know there's some within our assembly who've been praying for their children for years and scores of years. Perhaps discouraged, thinking, I don't know if it's ever gonna happen. Would they be confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then, Lord, for the glory and honor of your own name, would you convert them? Would you save them so that they might be examples as well? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.